don't worry, I'm, um, I'm not late for the dedications. Um, I, I didn't miss it, it's all good. This is, uh, this is Jesse, he's my little, littlest little boy, number three. And he's just going to help me just for the very beginning of the talk this morning. And uh, I want to talk this morning about prayer. So maybe just think for a moment, I wonder what image comes into your mind, what image comes to mind when you think about prayer? Maybe it's, uh, maybe you picture closed eyes, bent knees, clasped hands. Maybe you think of liturgy, sort of using specific words and phrases. Uh, perhaps you think of, um, back to primary school, I don't know whether you had this, but when I was at primary school, we'd often, at the end of the day, we'd pick our seats, so I'd put them on the table, and, um, and we'd all recite a prayer, but like sort of desperate to get out of the room. Where are you going, little man? Um, maybe you sort of have like a wishing well um, approach to prayer. This is going to be interesting, isn't it? A wishing well approach to prayer. You know, sort of throw, throw the coin in and just wish and hope for the best. Or maybe you have um, like a sort of slot machine, vending machine type approach to prayer. You know, put this in and get that out. Or maybe it's like, maybe it brings to mind like a Harry Potter sort of moment, like abracadabra, get the spell right, get the formula right, and it should all work. Or perhaps um, even Bruce Almighty. Has anyone seen Bruce Almighty? Yeah, we've all seen Bruce Almighty. When Bruce gets to play God for a few days, and he gets all these prayer requests as emails that come through. And he's like, um, you know, he's going through them like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And eventually just answers all of them, yes, because he can't be bothered, and the world goes to chaos. And, uh, you know, the sort of send a request in, send a prayer in, and hope, just wait for the reply. But however you picture it, whatever way you picture it, I wonder, do you ever picture it like this? Do you ever picture it like this? child in the arms of their father. Now, I know in this picture, I'm representing God, and um, some of you might be thinking, it's always been something remarkable about Dave. And it's, it's kind of you. It's kind of you. But, um, but seriously, do you ever picture it like this? Because this is actually the way that Jesus talked about prayer. This is the picture we get from him. It looks like this. And I love this little man. I love him. He's an absolute legend. He has my ear at all times. At night, every night we'll, we'll um, read a little story and he'll sit on my lap and we'll talk about the day. And he'll chat and I'll chat and I don't know what he's saying most of the time. Um, but we're getting there. He's got a few words now, haven't you? Haven't you? You're more interested by the guitars. He's got that word as well. Um, but we'll talk and we'll chat. And it's because he's my son. And I'm his father, and it's close, and it's personal, and it's intimate, and it's safe. And in the Bible, this is what prayer looks like. This is the picture of it. Isn't that amazing? And I love that picture. I try to bring it to mind as often as I can when I, when I come to pray, because it's the way Jesus talks about it, and it's so inviting, and it's so unreligious, and it's so normal. Prayer in the Bible looks like this. Bless you, little man. Do you want to say bye? Can you do a wave? Can you do a wave? No, no. Here we go. There we go. There we go. So, um, 
Yeah, a little round of applause. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6 in the New Testament. And uh, we're just going to jump into one of the places where Jesus talks about prayer. And just look at that this morning. Um, In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 to 13, it will come up on the screens if you haven't got your Bible. And it says this, Jesus says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus begins um, at the start of that passage by deconstructing two models of prayer that they have around them. He says, firstly, don't be like the hypocrites who pray big prayers in public, who when they pray are more concerned about, what people, about the people seeing them than God hearing them. And in the, um, in the first century Jewish context that this was all written, um, religion was, like, was powerful. Um, the most honored people uh, were the rabbis. The more religiously committed you were, the more venerated you were. So prayer could almost be used for for the sake of social standing. But the problem with that sort of praying is that it has very little to do with God and everything to do with them, their reputation. It's a bit alien to us, isn't it? I don't know for you, but I certainly don't find myself wrestling with the temptation um, to burst into loud prayer for the sake of my reputation as I walk through Market Square in the city centre I just don't. Honestly, it's more likely to work the other way around for us, isn't it? The same thing that motivated them to pray is actually, in many ways, more likely to motivate us not to. If concern for their reputation pushed them towards prayer, then for us these days, it's more likely to push us away. Because in our enlightened Western secular context, it's just not seen as cool, right? It's seen as pre-modern. But Jesus is clear. Don't pray because it's fashionable. Don't, or stop because it isn't. It's not meant to be about us and what people think about us, which is what it becomes in that sort of system. It's not meant to be about us. In that sort of thinking, in that sort of thinking about prayer, God just slips out of the picture. God slips out of the center. Don't do that, Jesus says. It's just, it's just superficial praying. And then he, and he moves on, he says, and don't be like the Gentiles, Jesus says. You heap up empty phrases, and they think they'll be heard because of their many words, as if the success of our prayers depended solely on us getting it right, you know. I don't know whether anyone, um, anyone remember or used to play Tony Hawk skateboarding? PlayStation 1 days, it was like back, yeah, a few of you. Um, but there was this, um, you used to have this, 
thing in it where um, you can unlock secret levels to sort of skate around on if you use certain cheat codes. And you had to, the key was pressing the right buttons in the right order at the right time, okay? And um, so I remember if you held L1 and pressed circle right up, down, circle right up, square, triangle, <laughs> if you press those buttons in that order without missing anything and making any mistakes, then you'd unlock all these secret hidden levels. But you had to get it right. You missed the button and it didn't work. And um, I think sometimes, you know, we can almost approach prayer in that mentality. And it's some of what Jesus is critiquing here. You know, press the buttons in the right order and it works. Get it wrong and it doesn't. No, says Jesus. That's, that is not how to pray. That's superstition. And once again, it makes prayer about us. If prayer works, it's because I said it right. It makes it about me, dependent on me. It worked because I did it right, and once again, God slips out of view, slips out of the center. Both the types of praying that Jesus critiques here harbor the same issue. God has been removed from the center of it. And I just love it. It's like Jesus is just so insightful um, and, just also, and so bold. He just speaks the uncomfortable truth again and again and again. You know, so much for the sort of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, lamb round his shoulders, won't say boo to goose, because he just, he just says it as it is over and over. The models for prayer you have around you are just not worth following, Jesus says to his disciples. And so he begins by deconstructing the models they have around them. And then he says in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. How, not what. It's not a formula. It's, it's just an example. It's like a type praying that's a bit like this. And he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. That's, I, that's all I want to look at this morning. Just that phrase. Because I think it's so key. Our Father in heaven. In contrast to the models around he recenters their prayer straight back on God, brings God right to the center of the picture. But he doesn't just use like um, some of the generic titles for God that, he, that were available to him, he could have used. Um, instead, he gives us this fascinating, rich image. We pray to the God who is our Father in heaven. And it's important, it's really important because the God we see affects the way we pray. And the way we pray reflects the God that we see. The God we see affects the way we pray. And the way we pray reflects the God that we see. If we see him as angry, then we're going to pray with fear and anxiety. If we see him as distant, then we're going to look to ritual to fill the gap. If we see him as an impersonal force, then prayer is just going to feel like crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. If we see him as a judge, then our prayers are going to feel a bit like a defense. If we think he's fictional, then our prayers are just going to feel like poetry, or maybe, maybe perhaps with some psychological sort of placebo effect or something. But if we see him as our Father in heaven, then that changes things. Because the God we see affects the way we pray, and the way we pray reflects the God that we see. So what we think about God when it comes to prayer is crucial. And Jesus puts it right there at the start, at the very beginning. It's like he knew. Pray like this, he says, our Father in heaven. 
And I just want to look at that phrase in, in two parts. We're going to start with the, the second, in heaven. You know, um, if you want to see something change, then you need to find someone who can actually bring about that change, right? Someone who has the authority or the ability to do whatever it is you want them to do. And so often in shops, um, you'll hear, you know, a customer returning something that's broken or complaining about something uh, to a member of staff. And eventually the member of staff will say, you just, you're going to need to speak to the manager. You're just going to need to speak to the manager. I don't often get to that point just because I find the whole thing so awkward, like they just get rid of me straight. They say, no, you can't do that. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm so sorry. Uh, it's just too awkward for me. But you, m- most people push a bit further. But you'll need to speak to the manager, they say. And that's because the manager's the one with the authority to do the thing that they need doing. Or if you want... Um, you're, if you want... Uh, to go bigger than that, you know, locally, if you want to see something change, maybe it's the MP that you need to go to, or if it's nationally you want to see something change, then you really need to have your voice heard in government or parliament or wherever that makes those decisions now. Um, aren't you? You've got to go to the place that can do the thing that you need doing. You need influence with the person you can. And the God to whom Jesus points us to pray to is the God who is in heaven. And being in heaven throughout the Bible is synonymous with his power and authority. In Psalm 11, 4, it says, the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. Thus says the Lord in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In heaven points to his power and his authority. It's where his throne is. And it's, And it stands in pointed contrast to all the surrounding religious contexts that they were in. So the Romans, the Greeks at the time were polytheists. And so they believed in many gods. They had loads and loads of idols in their pantheons where they kept them all. But the God of the Bible is not just one among many. Jesus doesn't say, our father in the pantheon. He says, our father in heaven. He's the God who is in heaven. Many of the pagan religions around that time were animist, and so they saw divinity in created things. So the sea was a god, and the trees were gods, and the mountains were gods. But the God of the Bible, the God who is in heaven, isn't part of creation. He's the one who holds creation in his hands. The point is clear. The God to whom we pray is powerful and therefore able to do whatever we ask. And perhaps you're here today, I I don't know, perhaps you're here in a difficult situation, you're facing something unsure whether God is really enough for that thing. Could he, can he really do that? What about that? Just listen for a moment to how the Bible talks about this God to whom we come in prayer. Over and over, it speaks like this. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. All things. In Jeremiah 32, we read, behold, I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? And it's rhetorical. In Psalm 147, great is our Lord and abundant in power. Paul, um, one of the authors in the New Testament, he, he signs off to one of the churches he's writing like this in Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Immeasurably more then we could ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. 
He's powerful. It's all over the Bible. In Genesis, he's the creator and sustainer of all things. In, uh, with Abraham and Sarah, he gives them a son, though they're barren and over 100 years old. With Moses, he parts the Red Sea and frees Israel from slavery. With Joshua, he dries up the Jordan and he stops the sun from moving in the sky. With Gideon, he defeats a million men with 300. The Old Testament is just full of story after story after story of God's power. And then Jesus, look at Jesus. He feeds the 5,000 with nothing. He walks on water. He gives sight to the blind. He casts out demons. He commands the sea to be still. He heals the sick. He turns water into wine, raises the dead, and is himself raised from the dead. Is there any reason to doubt his ability? This is the picture of God that Jesus paints for us. Our Father in heaven. And it affects the way we pray, right? We come with reverence, with awe, humility. That's all good. But also with confidence, massive confidence that we have found our way to the seat of power. The one who can do what we need doing. It's amazing. I was reading the other day um, about Brother Andrew who... He used to smuggle Bibles into the communist block when the Iron Curtain was up. It was an illegal thing, um, but he used to drive in with his car and he'd smuggle all these Bibles. And there's this one point where he gets to a, to a border crossing and, um, and the guards are checking and searching every car as they come through. And he's got Bibles all over his car, not even in view. He's got, the, he's got Bibles all over the car. And... Um, and he, uh, and he starts to get really concerned. It's like, the game's up. You know, this is it. I'm going to, this is going to be all over for me. And he, and he prays this prayer. And he says, he prays, uh, to, he says, God, you made blind eyes to see. Would you make seeing eyes blind in this moment? And the guards come and they search the car and they don't find, they can't see a single Bible. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. God's powerful. He can do. And you know, there's loads of stories here, week in, week out, of people who have been healed emotionally, physically, God doing amazing things. You could probably turn to the person next to you in this room and say, can you tell me a moment when God's done something? And many of us would be able to say, he did this, I remember when he did this. Even in my own life, in our own family, we've seen God work miraculously and in amazing ways, even in the last a few months where he's just bring, brought restoration that we never thought could happen and couldn't happen without him. It's amazing he's able. Jesus starts his teaching on prayer this way. Pray to the powerful God, the all-powerful God, the one for whom nothing is too difficult, the one who is able, who is in heaven. But you know, lest we fear to approach him, there's something else significant about this God to whom we come, that we're invited to come to who we pray. Pray like this, says Jesus, our Father, our Father. And we're so familiar with this prayer that it's just easy to lose the impact of it, right? We've heard it so many times, but within, um, within Judaism, there's actually no previous account of anyone referring or praying to God in this way. None. The word Father that Jesus uses here is the word Abba, and it's not a formal word, but a domestic term. It's the word that uh, little children would use. And m- many scholars say the, most, the best equivalent, the best way to understand it is, is with our word, daddy. Can you feel 
just the tension of that. The God of heaven, all-powerful creator, daddy. Over and over, this is how Jesus talks to and about God. And it's new. No one else had done it in this way. As I had Jesse up here, I've got two other little boys, Reuben and Ezra, all under five. So you can pray for me, to the God who is able. Um, But um, I'm trying to be a good father. Um, But it's not always easy, right? Don't always know what to do, as many of you will know, as many of you who have similar situations. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, we were at a conference and um, we were camping and Lizzie had gone to the the main meeting. And uh, so I was doing bedtime for Reuben, who was three, and Ezra who was one. And so I got them ready, which is a feat in itself, right? <laughs> but I made it. They were in their pajamas, teeth brushed, in bed. It was all good. And I went outside to read. And then there was the dreaded moment where you hear the cry. You know, there's, there was a cry and I was like, oh no. So I got up and went to see what, what's the matter? What's going on? And um, I walked into the tent and genuinely, I was, I was like, I can't, I don't even know what to say. Reuben uh, was crying. Ezra, who was one, was standing in his travel cart, having taken all his clothes off, um, including his nappy, and weed all over his bedding, all over the cot. And because travel carts have that sort of mesh at the side, the weed had also gone all over Reuben, and all over Reuben's bed, and mine and Lizzie's bed as well. So... um, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my goodness, because we were camping and Lizzie had gone to the meeting and I didn't know what to do. And I remember just standing there, at which point Ezra, uh, Ezra who was the one-year-old, just started to get a few words standing there without any clothes on in his cot, just puts his hands up and he goes like this, cheeky monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely did not know what to do. Unbelievable. Now, it's a silly example, but as a dad, there's been so many moments where I've just not known what to do, or failed, or been at a loss, or made poor decisions, or spoken out of frustration, or lost my patience. And across this room, our experience of fathers is going to be wide and varied. Some better, some worse, some terrible, but all imperfect. And to get a handle on what Jesus means when he uses that word, Father, we We have to allow the Bible to define it for us. It can't be based on just our own experience, good or bad. So what does the Bible say? How does it talk about God as Father? Well, in one place in Matthew 9, Jesus says this, Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's a sort of father who gives good gifts. Most of you will know the story of the prodigal son. A son asked for the inheritance that he would receive upon his father's death early. And it's offensive and it's horrible, but the father gives it him anyway. And the son runs off and he squanders it on crazy living. And eventually he finds himself moneyless, friendless, eating the food that the pigs are eating. And he decides in that moment to go back to his father and just plead for a position in his father's house, house as a servant. And he starts this journey back. And he's preparing a speech and an apology, guilty, ashamed, unsure of how, the fa- how his father will react. And we read this about the father. This is a story Jesus told. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, kissed him. And the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And the story teaches us about what God is like. God is the father in that story. He's the father in that picture. That's the sort of father he is. In those days, men never ran. It was just seen as too undignified, humiliating to raise your clothes, to pull up your clothes, bare your legs and run. But this father runs to embrace his son. That's the sort of father he is. In another place in Hebrews, it says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And when he does, he's treating you as sons. He's the type of father who disciplines us because he loves us. In fact, the whole gospel, the whole Bible story, paints this big picture of a father, a God, who so loved us that he even went to the cross to draw us back to himself. That's what he's like. That's the definition That's what he's like, totally good, totally loving. A father who gives good gifts, who disciplines because he loves, who sacrifices that we might know him. Kind, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, caring about right and wrong, but full of mercy at every turn. That's what he's like. That's who we approach in prayer. Isn't that amazing? And it was new. This was Jesus bringing something new. He's not a distant, impersonal force or an angry deity or a tight-fisted monarch. He's a father. And we call him daddy with unrestricted access. Just what last weekend, some of us um, who play in one of the bands here were leading worship down at a festival in, uh, down south. And um, we led worship and, and we came off stage afterwards and there's this little section um, where those who are leading bits could stand um, that was sort of barriered off from everybody else. Um, you couldn't get in unless you had, um, unless you had a guest pass or a, a special um, certificate thing. And, um, and so, but I came off stage and as I did, um, my two eldest, so Reuben and Ezra, um, of weeing fame, uh, Reuben and Ezra um, just burst through the gate shouting, that's daddy. No thought to protocol, no permission, no passes or anything. They just burst through the gate, ran away from the, the ticket people, <laughs> and they're shouting, that's daddy, that's daddy, that's daddy, and ran up to me for a big hug. You see, they saw me, and they knew nothing of boundaries. They knew nothing of boundaries in coming to see me. That's the sort of access we have. So Jesus grounds his teaching in prayer in the nature of the one we pray to. Because the God we see affects the way we pray. And the way we pray reflects the God that we see. There's this famous picture, I think Ben used it a few weeks ago, but it captures this so well. This picture of JFK, John F. Kennedy, and his um, son is called John John by the press. And um, he's beneath the, the, the president's table in the Oval Office. And apparently he would just run into meetings, just burst into the room to see his dad the president. Anyone else would have been in real trouble. They'd have been caught. 
they'd have been escorted out by the guards. Anyone else would have been refused access, but not his son. Because whilst he's Mr. President to everyone else, he's daddy to his boy. I love that. Isn't that how it is? So Jesus points us to this God who is able, but he's also good. He is God Almighty, and yet we call him Daddy. He is the creator and sustainer of all things, and yet we have his ear. He's, as the theologians say, transcendent and imminent. He is other and yet present. He holds planets in his hands, and yet he counts every hair on our heads. He is above and beyond, and yet he is so close and intimate, further than the furthest star, closer than our beating hearts. This then is how you should pray, says Jesus, our Father in heaven. How can that not encourage us to pray? What better foundation could you think of? So I just want to encourage us today just to lean in to the Father in prayer. As we head into this new term, not religious ritual, slot-driven, superstitious-type praying, but Jesus-type praying, talking with God like a father and a son, a father and a daughter. Perhaps you're here today and you've never prayed. Perhaps it's just been something that's always been so tied up with religion but I'd just love to encourage you this morning. It's, it's so much easier than you might have thought. You don't need big words. There isn't a right or a wrong. It's just a conversation. It just starts with saying, Father. Perhaps you've been wounded. You hear this this morning and you've been You've prayed for things and they haven't happened in the way that you wanted them to and it's left you feeling wounded and it's left you feeling, carrying some scars from that, some uncertainty, some fear. And you know, many of us will, will know that. I mean, for my, my wife and I, we even just very recently, um, three weeks ago, we lost a little baby in a miscarriage at like 11, 11 something weeks. And we... Um, you know, we prayed and prayed that that little baby would be okay and that they'd, they'd survive and God would protect them. We prayed and we asked for that and the, and the baby died and we lost them. And it's sad and it's wounding. But you know, prayer isn't supposed to be like a vending machine. It's not meant to be like a slot machine. Put the prayer in, get the, get the answer out. It's just not the way it's designed to be. It's nowhere near as clinical and cold as that. It's a relationship. It's a conversation with a father. And so for Lizzie and I, there's been pain and wounding and heartache and sorrow, real sadness over that loss. But the best place to take it, the only real place to take it is to a father who is, who is all of these things that we read about in this book. Like it basically rests on whether what Jesus says is true. And if he is that sort of father, then 100,000 times Lizzie and I want to run straight to him with whatever wounding and pray and talk because it's less clinical than a slot machine. And if that's you, then I'd love to invite you this morning. Come and maybe 
you could come and there's healing for some of that wounding this morning. Whatever it is, whatever you're here facing that you need prayer for, whatever feels overwhelming, then be encouraged because we come to a Father who is for you and a Father who is able. Why don't we stand together?